Okay, we are recording. Good. So, good evening, everybody. Our topic for tonight will be the birth of the Mossad and the Shin Bet. Uh, or rather, the birth of the Shin Bet and the Mossad, because it's in that order. Um, if last time our focus was on pre-1948 and the Shai, the Sherut Yudiyot, which was the intelligence services of the Haganah, so now we're going to focus on after the establishment of the state and how these organizations came to be, what their purpose is, who's running them, and what kind of values are they going to uh, cherish and hold dear? Because it's a dirty business to be in the spy business. And in a democracy that is supposed to protect certain uh, the rights of the citizens and other individuals, sometimes you know the security state runs roughshod over all of that. And there are no rights, and it, everything takes a backseat to you know, emergency me- measures and the needs of, of protecting society as a whole. So that was the big challenge of for the state of Israel of balancing, on the one hand, defense and security with a durable democracy. Israel was supposed to be a democracy. It does, hold, you know, the, in the pre-state era, there were elections for the Zionist movement. There will be an election for the Knesset in January of 49. Israel is supposed to be uh, a representative form of government. Okay. So in June 1948, there was a meeting at the headquarters of the Shai. June of 48 was a, a turning point because the Haganah ceased to exist uh, and the IDF came to be. Um, and the various uh, arms of the Haganah were now going to be transformed into either aspects of the IDF or separate institutions running in parallel. A new security arrangement was developed. The head of the Shai, a man by the name of Isser Be'eri, or known as Big Isser, as opposed to Little Isser, who we'll meet shortly, Big Isser got his instructions from the old man, the Zaken. Who is the old man? David Ben-Gurion, who's, by the way, not that old. Ben-Gurion is only, you know, 62 years old at this point, uh, but he is known as the old man. So the instructions are there are going to be four agencies. The first one is Aman, or Agaf Modin, military intelligence, under the auspices of Isiberi himself. Its job would be to collect information about neighboring Arab armies, to maintain security within the IDF, and to engage in a certain measure of counter-espionage. Ba'eri was fanatical about corruption. He was a bad guy, we'll see, but he was he didn't like, you know, people pocketing money, stealing. He believed in scrupulous behavior uh, in terms of, you know, between you and the system. We'll see he had no scruples whatsoever. Um, He believed Israel should be a perfect society and had no tolerance for anything he thought was going wrong. The second organization would be for domestic security, the Sherut Bitachon HaKlali, the General Security Services, otherwise known as the Shabak or the Shin Bet. And the Shin Bet would be run by Isser Halperin, otherwise known as Isser Harel, also known as Little Isser, because whereas Isser Be'eri was a huge hulk of a man, Isser Harel was a tiny little fella, you know, five foot four, uh, not exactly intimidating. We're going to see shortly, or actually maybe at the end of tonight's session, how Isser Harel rose to the top of the intelligence heap. What did he do when he was in the Shai? He mainly did surveillance on right-wing Jews. Remember, 
There are enemies who are external enemies, but there are also suspicious Jews who we don't trust, who we don't like, whether they're on the far right or on the far left. And given that Ben-Gurion was uh, the leader of the Yishuv, even before the state was established, he became prime minister. Before that, he was the head of the Jewish agency. So as the head of the Jewish agency, he's the, the democratically elected head, and he represents the, the center-left, so to speak. So anyone who's further to the left is, suspe- is suspect, and anyone who's to the right is suspect. And Isser Harel, he was Mr. Surveillance on any Jew who was seen as uh, not so kosher. Okay. Now, the third uh, aspect of the intelligence services would be a foreign intelligence service under Boris Guriel. However, it would be the foreign ministry's political department. It would not be run by the prime minister. It would be run under the foreign ministry, which is similar to the British system rather than the American system, uh, which is not surprising because Israel was taking over for the British mandate. The fourth part of the intelligence services would be Mossad Aliyah Bet, the Institute for Illegal Immigration. Now, illegal immigration was a very important thing prior to 1948, when the British controlled the country and they patrolled the coastline. So getting in, getting Jews into the country was no small task. And you needed a whole apparatus with, with agents all over ports, all over Europe and the Mediterranean with millions of dollars and ships and all that. You needed all this stuff to bring Jews to Palestine. But after 1948, it's still an ongoing issue because you have plenty of countries, most notably the Arab countries, where immigration to Eretz Yisrael is illegal. And you're going to need Zionist activists or Israeli state operatives working to facilitate the arrival of Jews from those countries to Medinat Yisrael. Okay, and that would be run by Shaul Avigur, who together with uh, his buddy Reuven Shiloh had founded the Shai 20 years earlier. So the overarching head of all the intelligence apparatus was Reuven Shiloh, Mr. Intelligence. His official job was special advisor to the prime minister for foreign affairs, which was a nice fancy title, but really it meant he was the right-hand man on all intelligence issues. And Shiloh um, was born in 1901, and he had, in the 1930s, spent three years in Baghdad, spying on at an Arab country, a future major adversary of the state of Israel, working with the Jewish communities to facilitate immigration. Uh, and he learned a lot while he was there. He also was the, the author of Israel's peripheral strategy. Now, in previous years of lectures, we've discussed this peripheral strategy, that Israel was to develop friends and relationships in the broader region that in countries that don't border Israel itself. So if Egypt is an enemy, Saudi is an enemy, Jordan is an enemy, Syria, Lebanon are enemies, then make a friend out of Iran, Turkey, Ethiopia, Kenya, possibly even Morocco, you know, countries that are not too far away, but far enough that uh, it, you know, it helps. This was Shiloh's contribution. He also was the first go-between uh, between the Zionist movement and the OSS, the precursor to the CIA. So the fact that the CIA and, the Mo- and later the Mossad have very good working relationships goes back to Ruven Shiloh already in the 1945, 46, 47 era. Okay, so it's now June of 48, and you have these organizations that are now officially being established, although they're kind of ephemeral, but there are problems. There are problems with the security services. And one of them 
happens on the very day of this meeting, when the, the various branches of the security apparatus were formed. June 30th, 1948. Isser Ba'eri ends up having a fellow Jew executed. This is a very, very uncommon occurrence for a Jew to kill a Jew in the context of an official act of the state of Israel. In fact, it probably is the only time it ever formally occurred. What happened? The, the Arab Legion in Jerusalem was having great success in uh, shelling with artillery fire small arms shops that were producing uh, munitions for the IDF in, Jerusalem, in Western Jerusalem. And the thought was, there's no way they're getting lucky time and time again, randomly hitting our arms manufacturers. It must be someone of our team is releasing information to somebody that's getting to the Arab Legion, and that's how they're bombing our factories. So the suspicion fell upon Mayor Tobiansky. Tobiansky was a, a captain in the Haganah, now in the IDF, and stationed in Jerusalem. His job in civilian life was that of uh, an engineer for the, the Jerusalem Electricity Corporation, which had British uh, managers. And this guy, Tobiansky, was known as an Anglophile. So the theory was that he was palling around with his bosses, passed them along information regarding Haganah munitions factories, and they, the, the, the British, passed it along to fellow British officers who were commanding the Arab Legion for the Jordanians. And that's how this all went down. Was there any real evidence that Tobiansky was guilty, or was this all just a, an assumption, or an assumption upon an assumption upon an assumption? I don't know. But there was a drumhead court-martial, it was a kangaroo court, where Be'eri, Benjamin Ghibli, who will see this character shortly, if you may remember him from the Lavon affair from a few years ago, and a few other the shy officers served as a court-martial, and they announced guilty, deserving of the death penalty. And minutes later, Tobiansky was taken out outside, not even given a blindfold, and shot to death by uh, uh, by officers of the, uh, 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 of the IDF. So here you have Jew killing Jew after a phony baloney court-martial right outside of Jerusalem. Well, what happened afterward was Tobiansky's widow sent a letter to Ben-Gurion furiously, you know, what happened here? Why is my husband dead? Why did, you, why did the state of Israel kill my husband? And Ben-Gurion reopened the case. Turned out that Tobiansky probably was innocent. He was given a posthumous uh, exoneration, and the widow was given a pension uh, for life. So this was one strike against Isser Be'eri, that he he was a real tough cookie and would do things that ended up being stupid. So Be'eri also was busy framing the mayor of Haifa. If you're familiar with the history of Haifa, so Abba Hushi was the mayor of Haifa. Abba Hushi, I love that name. Um, he was a popular character, an important person in left-wing politics in Israel, uh, but he was accused of being too soft on the Arabs. Now, if you know the history of Haifa and the, the, the exile of the Arabs from Haifa in the 48 war, it's a complicated story about how in April, late April of 48, the Haganah was able to conquer the Arab portions of the city. Mostly Arab residents of Haifa fled to Lebanon. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's an important component to the War of Independence. And the thinking was, Hushi was too soft because he let some Arabs stay. And about 20, 30% of the Arab population of Haifa stayed. So what happened was, Hushi had a right-hand man by the name of Jules or Yehuda Amster. And Amster was 
arrested and tortured by Be'eri's men for 76 days, from mid-May to August 1st. Eventually, he was released as a broken man. He had been waterboarded. So long before Donald Rumsfeld was waterboarding people in, in, you know, in Iraq in 2004, uh, Be'eri's goons were, were waterboarding Amster in Haifa in 1948. Um, and Be'eri also fabricated evidence against Hushi, manufacturing phony telegrams in which Hushi is sort of plotting with the Arabs. Uh, but this eventually came to light that it was fake because the forger himself testified at trial that, that he had done so at the direction of his superior, Be'eri. A third thing that, that Be'eri did wrong was he, he killed Ali Qasim, who was an Arab who was a double agent, who was providing critical information for Israel during the War of Independence. But, but Be'eri thought the guy was a triple agent really working for the Arabs. Turned out he wasn't a triple agent, he was a double agent. So all these uh, these problems are piling up. So, um, one second. All right. Well, Barry was either a flawless man of great integrity or a fierce megalomaniac, depending upon whether you asked his his detractors or his his friends. Um, and had the civilian leadership allowed this kind of um, operations to continue, then. Israeli intelligence could easily have turned into a KGB-style operation, rather than being a principled organization operating within the context of a Western democracy. It could have been the KGB or the Stasi or the uh, the NKVD, you name it, or the Gestapo. It had to come to an end. There was a need for moral principles and individual rights. So Be'eri was suspended from the army in November of forty-eight tried for manslaughter in a, in a military court-martial and found it guilty. He was then tried again in a civilian court and again convicted, and he was sentenced to a symbolic one day in jail. One day in jail. Barry only lasted six months. He had a narrow-minded view of state security. He had no time for political gamesmanship or even human rights. But in a totalitarian state, Barry's methods would have been tolerated, but not in Medinat Yisrael. So someone had to take over for him who was going to be, you know, clean up the act. Who cleaned up the act? A man who would go on to have a very illustrious career for the state of Israel. Who am I talking about? Chaim Herzog. Chaim Herzog would, would, was a, the son of the chief rabbi, of Yitzhak Isaac Herzog. So he was the son of the chief rabbi. He was a yeshiva bacher at Mossad Harav. Then he kind of left the yeshiva, and I'm not sure how from he was later in life, but um, he would go on to serve in the British military as an intelligence officer during World War II, then an intelligence officer for the Haganah, then the head of military intelligence in the IDF, then go to law school, uh, then come back to the head of the military intelligence in the IDF, then establish a, a most prominent law firm in the state of Israel, uh, uh, Fox uh, uh, Neman Herzog, and then he would go on to be the ambassador to the United Nations. Then he would go on to become the president of the state. And his son also would go on to become the president of the state. So the Mishpacha Herzog has done a lot for Medinat Yisrael. Now, what Herzog did was um, he introduced computers, code breaking to the Amman, and uh, professionalized it with the kind of expertise that he had gained from serving under the British. Around this time, Reuven Shiloh decides we need to have a committee. We can't have each intelligence organization operating uh, independently and without coordination, because then the right hand won't know what the left hand is doing. 
As it turned out, the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing, and we're going to see that play out disastrously in Iraq in 1951. But there was an awareness you have to coordinate. So Shiloh established the Vad Rashashirutim, the Committee of Service Chiefs, or Varash. Varash was never spoken about in public. Nobody knew it existed except for those who were participants in Varash. Okay? And Varash had a problem on its hands. The problem was the the precursor to the Mossad, the political department of the foreign ministry, the external intelligence agency, meaning not the military intelligence and not the Shin Bet and not the the, the immigration stuff, but the foreign intelligence services under civilian auspices. Well, the problem was this. There were many uh, spies, I don't know, many, but there were a whole host of spies who had been serving since the pre-state era in European cities, European capitals, and elsewhere in the, around the world. And they had gotten accustomed to living the high life. Uh, James Bond-style champagne, staying in fancy hotels, eating in the high, you know, five-star restaurants. They thought that was the life of a spy. The truth of the matter is they were accomplishing very little because the kind of information that they were gaining was not all that useful to the security of the state. It was a sort of political gossip in, in foreign countries. But they were living the good life. And there was an, eventually a revolt of the spies because they didn't like the reorganization of uh, the security system. The revolt was led by Asher or Arthur Ben Natan, otherwise known as Arthur the Handsome. He looked good. I saw pictures of him. He looked good. Arthur the Handsome. The political department's operatives had diplomatic cover. Now, that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. On the one hand, it's potentially advantageous because you have a certain measure of access and you have diplomatic cover in case things go wrong. But on the other hand, it's operationally less useful because everybody assumes that if you're a diplomat, you're actually a spy. Okay, if you're working in the consulate, you're working in the embassy, Mistama, presumably you're spying. So there's only so much you can get away with. Ben Natan's headquarters were in Paris. Paris has long been a center of Israeli uh, intelligence activity in Europe. And they ran a network of agents, mostly non-Israelis, mostly non-Jews, selling them information on the open market. Some of the Israelis' spies ran smuggling operations um, in off hours to help finance their lavish lifestyle, which the, the foreign ministry at, at one point stopped paying for. They didn't want to pay for this anymore. Why are you staying in fancy hotels? Why are you eating in fancy restaurants? With, with, with the, the state of Israel is on a shoestring budget. Who are you to waste our money? So they got into you know nefarious activities on the side. Their behavior was the polar opposite of a puritanical, socialistic, uh, and Spartan state of Israel, where everything was kept... Uh, as cheap as possible. The spies were lining their own pockets, and they were even accused of using the Swiss bank accounts of Jews who were gassed at Auschwitz. That somehow they got their hands on money of dead Jews from the Shoah, and that's how they were living it up in Europe. So there's going to be a desire to oust them from their significance, and we'll see that shortly. Herzog's successor in the military intelligence was Benjamin Ghibli. And Ghibli hated the political department, the guy, the, 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 the fancy spies in Europe. So he teamed up with the Shin Bet and Isser Harel to take down the political department. Here you have one, uh, two agencies of the Israeli security state operating against a third. Now, infighting is not good. And a small state 
barely surviving the onslaught of Arab armies really can't afford to have their uh, security operations compromised by infighting. And yet here it was. So what Guriel did to stick it to the Shin Bet was to have his people break into foreign embassies and consulates in Israel, which were supposed to be guarded and protected by the Shin Bet, just to prove that the Shin Bet was incompetent. So that's nuts. The idea that the the precursor to the Mossad, the foreign agency, was busting into embassies in Israel to make the Shin Bet look bad. That's how petty things were getting. And Guriel spoke dismissively of Ghibli's military men and Harel's policemen. Well, Ben Natan, the, the spy leader in Europe, he he sneered at the newcomers, the guys who were, who were arriving in Europe, because he felt they could not act properly in a refined European society. They didn't know how to hold their martini glass like uh, like Roger Moore or Sean Connery. Right? That, that, they, you know, they weren't getting the job done. Well, the foreign government's now at a problem because the foreign governments were dealing with Israeli intelligence, but we're getting uh, multiple liaison officers from different agencies making different requests. This can't go on forever. So Ben-Gurion decides, you know what, forget about this. He te- tells Ruven Shiloach, you have to put an end to the chaos. And so the political department was disbanded and Guriel was forced to resign. The spies who worked for him collectively submitted their resignation on March first, March 2nd, 1951, thinking that they were indispensable and that Ben-Gurion would have to rethink his decision because he couldn't do without foreign uh, operatives. In fact, what the answer was, good riddance. You want to resign? Goodbye. That's it. You're out. And instead of the political department of the, of the foreign ministry, it would be called the Mossad L'Modi'in L'Tafkidim Yuchadim, or the Central Institute for Intelligence and Security. And April 1st, 1951 is officially the Mossad, as we call it, the Mossad's birthday. The truth of the matter is that the decision to establish the Mossad was actually undertaken as early as December 13th, 1949. But it took a year and a half to get all this uh, moving because of bureaucratic delays. The goals of the Mossad were to be the long arm of the state of Israel, the long arm of the Jewish people, to organize Jews to protect themselves in uh, foreign lands where they are persecuted, and to organize clandestine emigration to Eretz Yisrael. These are all the responsibilities of the Mossad. Now, a lot of that is stuff that no foreign spy organization ever had to do. Okay, the CIA doesn't do that. The MI5 and 6 don't do that. But Israel was going to be special and different that there will be these burdens on the Mossad vis-a-vis diaspora Jewry. Okay, well, what happens next? So, the, um, the Mossad, when it was first established, did not have an operations unit. It was only an information collection agency, and it had to rely upon the other wings of the defense, of of the intelligence community to do anything, to rely upon the military, Amman, rely upon the Shin Bet operatives. This would eventually change, and we'll see how the Mossad was able to develop its hit squads and its own operatives. It takes time, and they'll get people from an unusual source, but that's not, we're not yet ready to disclose what that unusual source is. Okay, 
So Shiloh in, uh, becomes the head of the Mossad in 51, and he inherits a big mess, including the occasional bad apple. In other words, sometimes you have a spy who's working for you, but who's really working against you. And that man was Theodore Gross, otherwise known as Ted Cross, otherwise known as David Magen. He had three different names. As a good spy, you have multiple names, and sometimes those names don't make any sense. Well, Theodore Gross was a Hungarian Jew born in the early 1920s, made Aliyah in the late 1930s, and then served um, uh, in various capacities during World War II, and then in the IDF, and his new name was David Magen. But he was spying for Egypt while officially spying for Israel in Egypt. And he got caught. And he had to pay the price. He served some time in prison, was eventually released, and died in 1973, having never really ad admitted that he was guilty. Uh, sort of embarrassed about his true identity, he lived a life for, for, for a good 15 years after he was released from prison. Okay, but there was deep mistrust between the intelligence chiefs in Israel and operatives abroad. And there's a reason why there was this mistrust. You have to understand something. People who became spies for, the, for Israel early in the state's history had not actually spent a lot of time in Israel. Remember, the Yishuv is all about Aliyah, immigration. Yeah, there were some Sabras. You know, Yigal alone was a Sabra. And um, Moshe Dayan was a Sabra. And Yitzhak Rabin was a Sabra. But they were few and far between the Sabras. Most people came when they were young or when they were teenagers. And they had some kind of funny background, whether in Poland, Russia, Hungary, you name it. There's some foreign country. And they had some wartime experience during World War II. And they spoke a bunch of different languages. But how much time were they actually in Eretz Yisrael, in the Jewish community of Eretz Yisrael? A handful of years at most. It's not like they were born into it and this was their only. This was the only thing they ever knew. No, they were people of the world who had an up and down existence and now found themselves in, in Eretz Israel, in the state of Israel, working for clandestine services. So these people who then are sent back out to Europe, to the lands from which they came, how devoted, how loyal were they to, to, to the state? Who knows? You know, it's a, it's a big question mark. Okay, well, the big blunder... And we think of the Mossad as an, an effective organization and the Israeli intelligence as doing a great job and being you know, competent. But the early years had ma major blunders, major blunders. And the biggest one in the earliest years ha happened in Iraq. So Ruben Shiloh sent Yaakov Frank, Jacob Frank, um, to Baghdad to take over operations concerning immigration of Jews to Israel. Now, remember, there are a lot of Jews in Iraq, a lot of Jews in Iraq, and they're going to have to get out because it's bad for, for the Jews in Iraq. They're going to have to go uh, on these flights from Baghdad to Tel Aviv. 150, 125,000 Jews are going to escape over the span of about 18 months. But that takes a tremendous organization and clandestine operatives running the whole thing. So this Yaakov Frank character was sent to Tehran, and was given a fake passport under the name of Yitzhak Stein. He waited for two months in Tehran for further instructions and got nothing. So then he was told to go to Iraq under a Bahraini passport with the name of Ismail Tashba Tash Tashbakash. Well, he was furious. Why? Because he was an Ashkenazic Jew, a white guy who spoke fluent English and had served in the U.S. Army during the war. 
And now he's being asked to be a, an Arab Jew from Bahrain. He doesn't even speak Persian and he's in, in Iran. This is nuts. So he's being thrown to the wolves. When he crosses the border, he's going to get strung up and killed. Well, his patriotic duty got the better of him. And he decided to go to Baghdad anyway. When he got there, his Jewish contacts all refused to speak to him. Even Mordechai ben Porat, who was the, the, the chief man on campus among the, 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 the Zionist spies in Baghdad, didn't want to help him. But he realized, I got to stick it out until my life is actually in danger. I'm going to stick, stay here. And then if I have to go, I'll, I'll go. He realized there's a major flaw in Israeli operations in Baghdad. And what was that flaw? There was no compartmentalization. Rule number one of spying, compartmentalization. You know your thing, and you don't know the other guy's thing. This way, when someone gets captured and tortured, they can't reveal information that they don't know because they don't know it. The problem in, in Baghdad was you had Zionist youth movements, you had Israeli spies, you had uh, non-Israeli Jews, you know, local Jews working on their own to, to, to escape. A lot of undercover activity, but there was it, it, nobody was hiding anything from, from the others. It was all gemished in the shuls, in the kosher restaurant. Everybody knew everybody. They were talking in Hebrew. They were singing Israeli songs. There was no effort to hide anything. And that's stupid. It was a, a, a disaster waiting to happen. So Frank uh, realized, I got to get out of here. My life is in danger. He's able to sneak out of the country and go to Istanbul. He gets to Istanbul, and the Israeli consulate there refuses to give him a, a visa to go to Israel because he doesn't have any paperwork that says he's actually an Israeli. All he has is a Bahraini passport that says his name is Ismail, whatever his name. So he finally convinces them, no, no, I'm really a Jew. I'm really an Israeli operative. Get me back to Israel. He gets back to Israel, and what happens there? Reuven Shilach refuses to see him. Doesn't remember that he sent the guy on a mission two months earlier. So the, the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. It was really... Uh, absolute incompetence. But Frank was lucky. He was able to get out in time. Very shortly after he left, the whole thing comes collapsing. Why? Well, Yehuda Tagar was sent from, uh, from the Mossad to Baghdad to run uh, operations for immigration. The problem is a Palestinian Arab refugee from the Galil who happened to see this uh, uh, Tagger during 1948 once for a minute recognized him on the streets of Baghdad three years later. A total fluke, complete total fluke. And this guy, this Palestinian refugee, goes to the cops and says to the, to the Iraqi cops, you have an Israeli uh, a spy running around in Baghdad. They picked him up. They raided his apartment. They they uncovered some documents. They uncovered a massive arms cache in the Shem, in the Masuda Shem Tov synagogue, which was the main synagogue in Baghdad. Um, and why was there a major arms cache in the synagogue dating back to 1941? Because in 1941, you had a massive pogrom on Shavuot against the Jews, in which hundreds hundreds of Jews got killed. That was uh, you know a, a Shoah era pogrom against Sephardic Middle Eastern Jewry. So they kept hundreds and hundreds of guns and thousands of rounds of ammunition in the basement of the shul, it was all exposed. Um, dozens of Iraqi Jews are arrested. 22 are prosecuted. Two are executed. Tagar himself is, is condemned to die, taken into the, 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 uh, the gallows, to the death chamber, has the noose around his neck, 
And then all of a sudden, everybody walks away. It was a it was a bluff. It was just trying to get him to, to confess or say something in the last minute, but he had nothing to say. So they they put him back, you know, in the, in the cell and they didn't kill him. Tagar ultimately was was uh, released from prison and brought back to Israel nine years later in 1960. How did that happen? So uh, what happened was this: in 1958, the king of Iraq was assassinated. He was a Hashemite, a cousin. Uh, actually, a brother of of the King of Jordan, and um, the the Baathist part, well, the the, the revolutionary party in Iraq, which eliminated the monarchy. So a new general took over, um, General Abdul Karim Qasim, and there was an assassination plot against him. And Israel found out about the assassination plot, and they told Karim, "We'll tell you who the plotters are, who the conspiratorialists are, if you release Yehuda Tagar." They had a deal. He came home. Now, when he came home, the expectation was that he'd have like all of his teeth out and his eyes would be bloodied and, and he'd be all um, bruised from from maltreatment uh, over years in Iraq. And while he was maltreated, despite that, his spirits were still very high. Why were his spirits still very high? He told them, I knew you'd come to get me. I knew you would come to get me. So this is an important I- idea in the history of the Mossad and Shinbet, that no operative is left behind to die. You, you do whatever you can, you sacrifice any means to get your men home, even when they've been taken into custody and you have to do all sorts of you know, chicanery and what, whatnot to get them home, you get them home. The, the, uh, the departure of the Jews from Iraq gave a bad name to the Mossad because of one particular episode that we don't know for sure, till this very day, who's the guilty party. And this was the bombing of the Masuda Shem Tov synagogue. As I said, the main synagogue in Iraq, there was a bombing. And the accusation made by the Iraqis was that Zionist plotters bombed the shul. Why would Zionist plotters bomb the shul? Well, according to this theory... Iraqi Jewry was not very Zionistic, was happy to remain citizens of an Arab state as, you know, an ethnic and religious minority, and they were not interested in making Aliyah. So what did the Zionists do who wanted to build up demographically the state of Israel at the expense of the Palestinian Arabs? They needed Iraqi Jews to move. So you get them scared. How do you get them scared? You bomb the shul. And now all of a sudden they think they have to leave Iraq and go to Israel. Is that really what happened? Is that really what happened? So there are plenty of Jews who do believe that. The the Arabs said it as propaganda. Sort of not really caring whether it was true or false, just because they spread propaganda. But the Jews think it was true. And the answer is some Iraqi Jews really did. Ben-Gurion, recognizing that this was one of many issues tearing apart Israel along ethnic lines, in 1960 had an internal investigation which came to the conclusion that there was no evidence that the Mossad had bombed the shul. Okay, that's the, that was the uh, the official, I don't know if it's a whitewash or it was an honest assessment of what happened. Okay, now, uh, the next thing that, w- that happened was the dismantling of the Mossad al-Aliyah You know, the intelligence community can only do so many things and only has so much money at its disposal. So the fourth wing of the intelligence community, the illegal immigration component, was shut down in 
um, March of 52. So that all that was left was military intelligence, the Shin Bet, and the Mossad, the big three, which still exist today. W- what happened to the assets of the Mossad Aliyah Bet? So first of all, the planes, and they owned planes, became property of El Al. Ships, and they had plenty of ships, became property of the Tsim, the Tsim Ship Corporation. The uh, the agents and the forgers joined the Mossad, um, and the frogmen joined the Israeli Navy. So all the, the, the human assets and the tangible assets found their way to other national uh, institutions and organizations. All right. Shiloh was not the best administrator. And he was also in ill health by 1952. So he resigned on September 20th. And it was now the responsibility of the Mossad, to, well, of Ben-Gurion, to find a new head for the Mossad. And he had a few candidates. But the guy who wins the job is Isser Harel, who had been the head of the Shin Bet, and now will become both the head of the Shin Bet and the head of the Mossad, becoming the Memuneh, the designated man, the granddaddy, the grandpapa of Israeli intelligence, with almost total control over all that's going on other than military intelligence. Okay. So things had been improvised in the first four years of Israel's existence and coherent. Harel would now have to control both Mossad and Shin Bet and try to create some kind of order. Do something to put things in order. Get rid of the dilettantish and uh, uh, shuffling of responsibilities and put everything uh, in the right spot. Well, how did... um, Harel earned this position, and how did uh, he gain Ben-Gurion's trust that he should control so much of the secretive parts of the state? I mean, Ben-Gurion was no dummy. Ben-Gurion himself was a power-hungry madman. Uh, And I don't say that to disparage him. I say it just because it's true. So how did he give so much power to somebody else? He must have trusted him a lot. Well, Harel earned brownie points with Ben-Gurion Back in September of 1948, what happened in September of 48? So we've learned about this in the past. We spent a couple of sessions on this. During the 48 war, the the UN kept getting involved in trying to stop Israeli advances on the battlefield. And in, in August and September of 48, a mediator by the name of Count Folk Bernadotte, okay, the Swiss mediator, uh, 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 Swedish mediator. So um, he, uh, his his task was to get the two sides together to agree on something. And his plan was to take away Jerusalem from the state of Israel, that Jerusalem would go internationalized and would not be part of Medinat Israel. So, the, the right-wingers didn't like this. The truth is the left-wingers didn't, right, didn't like it either. But the right-wingers were willing to act on it. And so the Lechi, Lochamei Cherut Yisrael, the freedom fighters for Israel run by Yitzchak Shamir, decided we're going to assassinate Folk Bernadotte. On September 17, 1948, Yoshua Cohen, a gunman for the Lechi, and a couple other guys, they ambush his car on the road from from a government house in Amon Natsiv going towards the northern part of the city, and they kill him, he's dead, he's dead, and all hell breaks loose diplomatically for Israel, that the Jews killed the UN mediator. Terrible, terrible, terrible. So Ben-Gurion has to shut down the Lehi. He tells Isser Harel, as the head of the Shin Bet, you arrest every one of those guys. 
So Harel is successful in arresting nearly all the Lehi fighters. Shamir was able to get away, but you know, even he eventually had to uh, give up the you know give up the gig, and the Lehi ceases to exist. So whereas the Irgun ceased to exist after the Altalena episode, the Lehi ceased to exist after the, the, the Folk Bernadette episode. And Harel was seen as the hero of, of this uh, incident. Now, Harel did not like communism. He, as I said before, was surveillance on the far right and the far left. So Ben-Gurion, in the early days of the state, is worried about the potential for subversion by the political extremes. On the far right, you have Khairut and the old Irgun Lehi fighters who are still hanging around and, you know, maybe angry. Got to keep an eye on them. But also you have to hang you have to watch the left because there's there's the Israeli Communist Party, the Flagged Communist Israeli Maki, and you also have the Mapam, which was a, a socialist party that was pro-Stalin and was to the left of Mapai. And as far as Ben Gurion was concerned, Mapam was just as bad as Maki. So you gotta keep an eye on these folks. We don't trust them. They could be spying for the Soviets. And the 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 good the good surveillance that that, that Harrell, or Harrell was able to supply for Ben Gurion made him you know as seen as the the uh, the, the the ultimate in intelligence chief. Now in December of forty nine, as I mentioned, Ben Gurion had enough of you know, the fighting and the uh, the confusion, and he eliminated the political department of the foreign ministry. So one of the things that um, that happened was Ben-Gurion came up with an idea of assassinating the Prime Minister of Lebanon. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but in, in December of 48, during the war, when the Lebanese were maybe thinking of making a separate deal with Israel, maybe not, but the, the Prime Minister was causing trouble and was espousing anti-Zionist rhetoric, and Ben-Gurion says, I'm going I'm to have this guy assassinated. But because the hit squads and the foreign intelligence services were under the foreign ministry, which was Moshe Sharet's domain, he could put a stop to it. He said, no, Sharet was a believer in diplomacy. Ben-Gurion was a believer in the strong military, strong army, and good intelligence. So although they were they were collaborators for years and years and years at the, at the head of the Mapai, the two leading figures of the Mapai, Sharet and Ben-Gurion disagreed on major fundamental issues affecting the state. So Ben-Gurion did not want to have his, his wishy-washy, soft foreign minister having a veto over aggressive actions taken clandestinely against neighboring states and their, their their governments. So that was a reason to eliminate foreign ministry control and establish prime ministerial control over uh, the, uh, the outside actors. In this regard, Israel then moved away from the British system and closer to the American system, where the head of the CIA reports to the president of the United States, not to the secretary of state, directly to the president. So now... You have the head of the Mossad reporting directly to the prime minister. By the way, um, if you know anyone who works in an embassy or in a consulate for the state of Israel, and I know a few people, uh, and they say that they work for the defense mission. Okay, maybe they do. But if you then ask them, is your uh, superior boss the Sarabitachon or the Rosh Hashanah? And they tell you that it's not the Sarabitachon, it's the Rosh Hashanah. What does that actually mean? 
it means they're a Mossad spy. That their cover stories, they work for the defense mission or they work for whatever other uh, aspect of 42nd Street and 2nd Avenue, but they're really working for the Mossad. That's, you know, the, the unspoken but known truth. So now, where were these entities located? The foreign ministry was moved to Jerusalem. We spent a couple of sessions uh, years back about how Jerusalem is the capital of the state of Israel. So Jerusalem becomes the capital by decree of Ben-Gurion in, in December of 49, and practically in March of 1950, the Knesset moves to Beit Fruman, and the, the, the government offices move to the area you know, near uh, uh, where, the, where the Knesset is today, in, in Givat Ram. But before that, the government was operating out of Tel Aviv. So the foreign ministry moves to Tel Aviv, but the defense ministry and the intelligence services remain in Tel Aviv, specifically where in the, the old Templar colonies, the old German Nazi colonies in, in, in Tel Aviv, now become the headquarters of the Mossad, the Shin Bet, etc. Okay, so the uh, Tel Aviv wins out over Jerusalem. When it's a question of diplomacy versus taking action, clandestine action, as long as Ben-Gurion is the boss, Tel Aviv wins out over Jerusalem. Fine. Now, uh, the, the state of Israel had no death penalty. Had you were you, you couldn't kill anybody. Only Eichmann was killed because he because he violated you know uh, the the rights of the Jewish people and, and committed genocide. But extrajudicial killings are are not legal, and yet they're going to happen. This course is going to be a lot about targeted killings. So it becomes necessary for the state to establish parameters for doing so that only the prime minister will have the authority to issue these these edicts and he has to have a team who can carry it out um the state of israel has emergency provisions that they they adopted from the british mandate era that allow the government to act in sort of basically illegal ways on the under the cover of an emergency and um there's no budget there's no law that establishes the shin bet and the mossad so in Ben-Gurion's years, it was really up to him to, to fake it, you know, to, to, to do whatever he could on behalf of the state, but without the imprimatur of the democratic institutions saying it's kosher. Okay, fine. One of the things he ha- has to do is censorship. There's a military censor, that's a known thing, but there was also self-censorship, that the, the newspapers were sometimes on to some of these stories that the clandestine services had done this or that other thing, but the government doesn't want the people to know because after all, they were done basically in an illegal fashion with no justification in the law. And the prime minister doesn't want the public at large to know. So he established the editor's committee. The editor's committee was a committee of the editors of the major newspapers and radio stations um, and later TV, but originally just newspaper and radio in which he would tell the, the editors juicy tidbits. Oh, you know, our services did the following in another in a foreign country. We killed so-and-so, or we did this and we did that, but we can't have you publish it. I want you to know, because I care about you guys, the editors, and maybe you'll publish something vague, but you can't publish the whole story because it's in the interest of the state for the public not to know. 
Would this work in other countries? Probably not, but the patriotic sentiment of the editors of the various newspapers was such that they listened and they did self-censorship, the, the members of the editors' committee. Fine. Um, now, after 1952, when Harrell takes over, it doesn't mean that the, all the sloppiness is done and that all the mistakes are behind us. No, there will still be mistakes. The biggest mistake of them all was actually not the Mossad, but rather Amman, military intelligence in 1954. And that was the Lavon affair, okay, with Egyptian Jews being recruited by the state of Israel in Egypt to, to bomb government buildings and American installations as a way of dis sowing distrust among Western governments in the, in, the, in the government of Nasser and the Free Officer Corps. It was an idiotic plan that backfired horribly. Some Jews were executed, others were tortured terribly, and the most the, the the Mossad and Amman learned their lesson: never ever again recruit local Jews in hostile target countries to do your bidding. Because what happens if they get caught? The whole community is in danger. Never again. Don't do it. And we and we've spoken about the Lavon affair and the political consequences of the Lavon affair in past lectures. That was one big blunder. Another blunder it wasn't so big, but it, it involved the death of a Jew. Um, that was Alexander Yisraeli or, or Avner Yisraeli. What happened? He was a philandering grifter. He was a member of the. It was in the Israeli Navy, but he was a he was a grifter in deep debt, and he tried to sell top secret documents to the Egyptians at the, in the, at the Egyptian embassy in Rome. But the the Mossad found out, and the Mossad wanted to kill Yisraeli, just have him executed. But they determined we can't do that. Why not? This is a this is a key point. In the pre-1948 era, there were a handful of cases of traitors, people who either worked for the Haganah or were you know, members of the Yishuv who sold out for financial gain uh, you know, their country and their countrymen. And every now and then, those people had to be executed. And the reason they were executed is because you couldn't go to the courts. What courts? The British don't care that a Jew was acting treacherously against fellow Jews. The British couldn't care less. So the only recourse was to bump the guy off, or to give him a warning and then bump him off. But post-1948, Israel adopted a policy, especially after the Tobiansky episode, Jews don't kill Jews. That if someone commits an act of treason, we will prosecute them, send them to jail for a lengthy period of time, and then maybe not even for life. They'll, they'll eventually get released and they'll have to have remorse and, and feel sorry about it and live with ignominy and shame. But, you know, they'll live. So the goal was to capture this Avner Yisraeli guy and bring him back to Israel. So they caught him in Paris using a female agent. This is the, uh, the first time I mention female agent. The use of feminine charm to distract someone uh, when he's about to be grabbed off the street. This will be an ongoing thing in future operations. And they shove him on an on a Israeli Air Force cargo plane heading back from France to Israel. Uh, they use sedation, and they keep having to add more sedatives to him, every, another shot every time they, they land in a stopover. But they, they gave him too many shots, and he had a seizure, and he died. He died on the plane. So what do you do now? I mean, they bring him back to Israel dead, what do they tell the family? What is the media going to say? So Harel decided, you know what? Dump his body in the Mediterranean. So they've dumped him in the Mediterranean. Now what happens? But you have to tell the family what happened to this guy. 
So they they released a phony baloney story to the media that he found another woman and re, and, and and started a new life for himself in South America. Totally fake. The guy was really dead. But that was a cover story to make sure that, that, that everyone was off the trail. Um, so this is another example of a Mossad failing early in its uh, you know in its existence. Interestingly, Isser Harel burned all the records of the of the Alexander Israeli episode. He burned all the records. But what happened? His adversaries within the Mossad preserved some of the records just so they could hold it against Isser at a later time of their choosing. So everybody is stabbing each other in the back or waiting to at the opportune moment. Okay. Now, where did the Mossad get its men for when it comes to hit squads? Here, brilliant idea. Remember that when the IDF was established, it was the Haganah that was transformed into the IDF. Folded into the Haganah, into the, into the Haganah were elements of the Irgun. But only elements of the Irgun, not the whole Irgun, and not the Lehi. Those guys, some individuals may have joined the army, but a lot of them didn't. And they were struggling to find employment between 1949 and the early 50s because they had been blacklisted for having been members of dissident terrorist factions. So if you were one of you know, Begin or Shamir's henchmen, it was hard to find a job. But what skill did you have? Killing people, okay? So, and and being good at it and doing it in a clandestine way. And many of them spoke a, a bunch of languages. So these were guys who were perfect to be sent off on missions abroad. It accomplishes two things. You kill two birds with one stone. One, you get your Mossad team. Two, you get dangerous characters who are floating around Israel and could be subversive. You get them out of the country and you send them off to Paris or to Bulgaria or wherever and, and they'll kill a bunch of Arabs and, and, and ex-Nazis while they're at it abroad. It's a brilliant plan. This is how Yitzchak Shamir was rehabilitated. Shamir, after the, the Bernadette episode, so Lachi is gone. What is he going to do for himself in life? He kind of was uh, afloat, uh, you know, he was one of the Luftmenschen for a few years. Then he joins the Mossad and spends 10 years in the Mossad. And he said it was the best 10 years of his life. And then he goes into politics afterward with the establishment of the Likud and goes on to become the prime minister. But uh, he, Harel, who, who was hunting this guy down a few years earlier, comes to him and says, work for me. This will be an ongoing thing in the history of the Mossad. People who they at first were hunting down... They flip it around and say, work for us, work for us. Whether it's a Jew who was a you know a sectarian Jew or an ex-Nazi or an Arab, whatever it might be, you could flip a guy around very, very quickly. Okay, we'll stop here. And in two weeks, we'll meet again. And we're going to discuss some of the, the highlights of the 1950s, including uh, Khrushchev's speech being stolen, uh, letter bombs uh, killing Egyptian uh, officers in advance of the 56 war, and we may get into uh, the late 50s, eventually the beginnings of nuclear activity. And then after that, in, in projecting forward, we'll have an Eichmann episode. And then after that, we'll do Where's Yasala? After that, we'll have German scientists operating out of Egypt building rockets. And after that, we'll have killing Herbert Zuckers and we'll get to the Six-Day War eventually. Okay, so that's just projecting ahead. All right, folks, a good night to one and all. I recorded it, so if anybody wants it, they can email me uh, and I will share the message. Okay, have a good night, everybody.